Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. Today, I am joined by Dr. John Mascarenas from the Eichen School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York. Recently, he recorded a continuing medical education slash nursing continuing professional development approved activity, managing symptom burden and optimizing treatment outcomes in myelofibrosis. Today, he is here to share with us the importance of participating in this activity and further elaborate on the evolving landscape of treatment options for myelofibrosis. Dr. Mascarenas, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your research interests? Sure. So my name is John Mascarenas. I'm a clinical investigator in myeloid malignancies. I direct the leukemia program here at Mount Sinai in New York City, and my interest has been uh, particularly in myeloproliferative neoplasms and translational research, uh, early clinical investigation and late phase uh, clinical studies in myelofibrosis, essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and related acute leukemias. Why is it important that healthcare professionals participate in this activity and stay up to date regarding management of myelofibrosis? I think it's important to stay up to date in the management of myelofibrosis because it really is quite dynamic and quickly evolving in terms of the the understanding of the science that drives a lot of the clinical development, um, even the, the science that drives prognostication and risk stratification, um, and then the, the advances that we're seeing um, in terms of translational research from mechanism-based um, strategies that exploit and leverage scientific findings in myelofibrosis really make it a, a, a fast-paced and changing area of, of hematology. So it, it would be very difficult, I think, for most people who don't do this for a living or, or stay immersed in it in the way some people do to keep up to date and informed. And it's, it's, it's quite exciting to see the field change like this because it wasn't like this, obviously, forever. And uh, it's great. It's great for us uh, that are involved. It is exciting to see this. But I think ultimately it's great for the patients to have additional treatment options and a plan that might go beyond an initial therapy. So sequencing therapies um, and strategies and data that, that provides evidence for sequencing uh, therapies. As you just started mentioning the strategies and everything. So could you describe some of the emerging strategies to reduce symptom burden and prolong overall survival of myelofibrosis? Out a long time ago from the comfort studies that JAK inhibitors and, and the first one being ruxolinib was significantly associated with a downregulation of inflammatory cytokine expression, and that it was likely driving um, the symptom burden of these patients who were quite symptomatic. Um, and it was really rewarding as a physician to see patients feel significantly better, be able to get up and walk again, be able to get more engaged in family and work life, and simply feel better, reversal of cachexia, improvement in performance status. And I think this is what drove the, the modest survival benefits that we have seen with ruxolinib from the comfort studies. So there, there's a clear correlation or, or association between improvement in symptoms, which is a palliative effect, but how that palliative effect can actually have an impact on uh, other meaningful outcome measures like survival. So although we were not inducing complete molecular emissions or pathologic remissions in, in the patients we were treating, we were clearly making them feel better. And patients who felt better and moved and ate were patients who were more likely to live longer. Now, that was a great first step, but obviously our interest now is in improving that by adding drugs to ruxolinib, for example, that synergize with ruxolinib from preclinical data that support it, that would hopefully have a more profound disease-modifying effect that would you know, then uh, extend survival even further. And could you 
just describe a little bit of what JAK inhibitors are and why they're so important to the treatment of myelofibrosis? JAK inhibitors are a class of oral drugs. They actually started in clinical development in, in myelofibrosis. Now there, there's actually a lot of indications for JAK inhibitors that go beyond myelofibrosis, including uh, connective tissue disorders and dermatologic diseases, and, and even within hematology, graft versus host disease. But it started in myelofibrosis, and they are small molecule inhibitors that, that briefly interrupt the JAK-STAT signaling pathway, which is, which is integral to signaling through the thrombopotent and the methyl receptor, GCSF, um, erythropoietin, the erythropoietin receptor. So these, these cytokine-driven signaling systems that were overactive, either because of a JAK2B617F mutation, a calvertikin mutation, or a MIPL mutation, and were driving the phenotype of these diseases, the overproduction of blood cells, the inflammatory consequences, splenomegaly, et cetera. And it was quite obvious that giving them these um, small molecule JAK2 selective inhibitors um, that we were having a profound effect on certain aspects of the disease. In the activity, you mentioned some clinical trials. Has there been any updates from those regarding treatment or any that you would like to mention? One of the exciting things about being a clinical investigator in MPNs these days is that there's never a paucity of data that's emerging uh, from clinical trials that are, that are ongoing or completed. So from the early days of the comfort studies all the way up to 2022, we now have three approved JAK inhibitors. So Ruxolinib in 2011, Fidratinib in 2019, and Picritinib um, in March of this year, 2022. And then likely a fourth JAK inhibitor approved, Mamelotinib, likely the first quarter of 2023. And what you see is uh, niches that are developing uh, for these drugs. So although they're all JAK2 inhibitors, there are differences in their kinome profiles and selectivity for other important signaling molecules that likely explain differences in toxicity profiles, but potentially um, differences in, in efficacy that may provide advantages for certain niches. So for example, one obvious uh, example of this is pacritinib which was approved for patients with um, severe thrombocytopenia, but could be used for patients with platelet counts even up to 100,000. And this drug is associated with less myelosuppression. It is a JAK2 inhibitor. It is a FLT3 inhibitor like fedratinib. It does inhibit IRAC1, which is thought to also contribute to its, its activity and the fact that you can get a 25% anemia response rate and, st and stability, even improvement in some patients with plate low platelet counts and deliver the full dose and obtain significant symptom and, and spleen benefit. So that's a, that's a huge addition. Fidratinib has excellent data um, that often needs to be reminded to the uh, treating community as a second-line agent for patients who've had prior ruxolinib in terms of spleen and symptom responses of about 30%. So one can see a world where you can pick niches and even sequentially um, have a plan for treatment with JAK inhibitors. And then with mamalotinib coming in, which also inhibits ACBR1, and a recent publication shows that acritinib also inhibits ACBR1. This has been linked to the potential for anemia responses through hepcidin modulation. So all of a sudden, we're, we're looking at a world where there are different, it's almost like CML in, in a sense, there are different B-cerebral inhibitors. We're not getting those CML-like responses in terms of four and a half fold reductions in the driver lesion, but we are seeing areas where you can uh, maybe tailor the treatment based on degree of thrombocytopenia, anemia, have second and even third line options for patients in the commercial space. Um, and then as, I, as I've alluded to, the, the other exciting aspect is the, the prospect of, of adding rational drugs to um, these JAK inhibitors, whether it's Ruxolinib 
mainly and mostly at this point, but they could be uh, added to other JAK inhibitors, whether they're BET inhibitors like pelabrasib, BCL2 inhibitors like nabitoclax, uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors like parsiclisib, um, and a whole host of other drugs that are being developed, um, or even uh, drugs that could have effect as monotherapy as a non-JAK inhibitor approach after JAK inhibitor, whether it's tegroxifus or imetilstat, Vomodemstat. Uh, there are a number of different drugs that have mounting data that are even non-JAK inhibitor options, either alone or in combination with a JAK inhibitor. I, I think one of the most exciting aspects and, and sort of, I think, makes sense for a disease that's both chronic and, and progressive is the idea of moving combination therapies up front, not even waiting for patients to fail the first-line JAK inhibitor. So I think the best example of that is the manifest study combining pelabrasib, the PAN-BET inhibitor, with ruxolinib in arm three of the manifest study in patients who are JAK inhibitor naive, not waiting for patients to fail, because we know once you fail ruxolinib with a median time of discontinuation of three years from the comfort studies, the outcomes are pretty poor uh, with a median survival of about 14 months. And that's why imetilstat was very popular in the phase two study, because it looked like it was pushing the survival, uh, almost doubling the survival of patients after they've discontinued. And that's why studies like Impact MF looking at a phase three setting of patients with Russell uh, refractory disease is, is really paradigm shifting. So it's, it's not just trying to treat patients earlier on with disease, with combinations of therapies that might have a more profound effect, but also trying to introduce non-JAK inhibitor options to improve uh, survival. And you'll see that, I think, progressing each five-year period. I, you know, I think we will start to, to start to bring therapies that can work in concert with existing therapies earlier on in the disease that might have more profound effects um, than, than simply inhibiting the JAK-SAT signaling pathway, which is not unimportant, but is probably not sufficient alone. Since recording, have you learned anything or would you like to add anything that you feel the healthcare team should know regarding myelofibrosis? Well, you know, I think I'm most excited to see what happens at the American Society of Hematology meeting in December, because that's really where the next big update in clinical development uh, will, will be shared with the group. So that's definitely where I learn the most and see what my, what my colleagues are doing. One thing I, I think I, is worth mentioning is if it weren't for the brave patients that sometimes go out of their way to participate in clinical trials, that we wouldn't even be able to have this discussion. So it's really a tribute to, to the groundbreaking uh, work that that is a combination of you know physicians and patients um, and the trust that that exists there to to participate in these studies because it, it can be it can be quite frightening to have a disease it can be quite frightening to participate in clinical trials uh, particularly when there's an unknown and that takes a lot of courage so that's sometimes probably not appreciated um, by everyone involved but it is really a, a group effort on, on many people's part you know drug people in drug development, people in the, in the physician community, and then obviously um, the patient community and the patient support groups for bringing all of these uh, groups together. And ASH is a great place for us to see what, what kind of success we've had. We know that it won't be the end of it, but it will give us a sense of what we've accomplished, maybe um, identify unmet needs and areas to, to move into. So I think that is what I'm looking forward to. And, and hopefully after ASH, I could get back with you and share some, some updates of, of what we've learned. And one good thing too about at least the MPN research community is it's quite collaborative in the sense that you, you will notice that a lot of the, the people who are, who are really engaged and um, dedicated to this work together in groups to accomplish um, you know, advancing the field in a rare disease where you really need to pool resources and to work together. And I, I, I am proud to say that that does happen 
uh, very successfully in this in this area. So it's it's not a one man show by far. It's really a lot of men and women across the world that are dedicated to this um, mission of improving um, the understanding and then ultimately the outcome of patients with myelofibrosis and related MPNs. And for that, I think we're we're in a better place than we were probably 15 or 20 years ago. This is really great information. And definitely after Ash, we'd like to follow up with you. So we'll keep in touch about that. Thank you so much, Dr. Mascarenas, for being here today and giving us such great information and passion about the topic. And yeah, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you.